0: My name's John. Hello. Um, If you've got a Bible, um, you might want to open it to Romans in the New Testament, and we're going to start at chapter chapter 12, verse 18. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Today, we're going to focus on actually seven words from this verse, as far as it depends on you. At first glance, those words don't necessarily seem that big a deal. Um, It almost sounds like it's saying, look, you know, as far as is reasonable, you know, be be at peace with others. Perhaps it feels like it's saying, keep yourself to yourself and and try and be nice. But that's if we read those words in isolation. This verse comes from, from a book in the Bible, as I said, called Romans, which is several chapters long. And it was written in the first century by by the church planter, Paul, to the believers in Rome. And um, the first sort of 11 chapters of it, really, he explains the message of the gospel, all about what Jesus has done for us. And then in this section, he moves on to explain, so, so in light of all that Jesus has done for us, this is how we should live in response to that. And when we read these words in the context of of, of this wider passage, we begin to see how challenging this stuff really is. Um, If I start at chapter 12, verse 9, it says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour, Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If I was to sum this passage up, it's as if it's saying, in all of your, in all of your actions with people, what you need to do is, as you're looking at people, it's as if you're saying, look, I am going to take... Responsibility, it's my responsibility to look out for your interests. High tech, I know, isn't it? <laughs> and it strikes me how, how so much of the culture that we live in actually swims in the opposite direction to this mentality. If you know what if if you know what I mean. It seems that we live in a culture that is really preoccupied by saying, hey, it's your responsibility to look out for my interests. I don't know if you know what I mean here, but if you speak to somebody who's worked for any length of time in in the public sector, in the police force or um, healthcare or education, they will tell you that nowadays people are increasingly clued up about what their rights are and they're also increasingly keen to hold people accountable to, to what they believe they're responsible for, if that makes sense. Or think about some of, the, some of the signs that we see around us in everyday life, on walls and on doors, often spelling out, you know, these are our rights and, and these are your responsibilities. The fact that we have to click buttons constantly nowadays on screens saying, you know, accepting terms and conditions and saying, yes, by clicking this button, you know, we confirm that, that we reserve the right to do such and such and you're taking responsibility for this and that and you're clicking here to confirm that you will do such and such. And I'm sure we can all think of situations where we've perhaps been frustrated by people. Have you ever had somebody say to you, like, oh, that's that's my responsibility, but I can't do any more than that? You know, when somebody says that. If you're ever in need of cheering up, um, if you click the words, if you type the words, not my job, into Google... You see some brilliant examples of this. People who are like, this is how far I'm going and no further. I think we've got a couple of examples. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> Moving that tree would just be so much. Yeah. What else have we got? Yep, that's sorted it. Just pop the sign next to that. And then oh, so close. Hey. No, that's your responsibility. My job is putting it back. It's your responsibility to get it right. And I think this outlook this outlook triggers so much, when you think about it, of the conflict that we get into. Think about the last argument that you got into with somebody. It was probably because you were thinking that one of these things had been neglected in some way. And it's amazing how far conflict can escalate when we're adopting that, that mindset. Apparently, um, last year, two people in Florida tried to sue mcdonald's because they bought a quarter pounder with no cheese um, and they and they had to pay the same price as one that they would have paid for with cheese and so they tried to sue mcdonald's for five million (laughs) dollars for a slice of cheese now i know that's extreme and that is not the uk but i suspect that you know many of us recognize this outlook in the culture around us. And this Romans passage is is basically making the point that as followers of Jesus, we're called to to turn these things upside down, to swim in the opposite direction to the culture around us, to establish a culture that says, hey, I am going to take responsibility for your interests. Because the person at the heart of our culture, the culture of the kingdom of God, Jesus, that's the way he lived. He lived. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lived a life here on earth orientated around our needs, around our interests, ultimately to the point of laying down his life for us. And he calls us to live a life in response to that. In every single area. And today we're going to focus on two specific areas that this Romans passage addresses. um, In the areas of serving one another and also negotiating conflict. So first, serving one another. Um, In in verse 10 it says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. And then it continues, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Um, The preacher, Charles Spurgeon, um, was once talking to a cleaner who had recently become a Christian. And he asked her what difference Jesus had made in her life. And timidly, apparently, she replied, well, sir, I now sweep under the doormats. (laughs) She was ultimately serving and worshipping Jesus in her life, in her vocation now. And so it was no longer appropriate to say, well, that bit is not my job. She was thinking about it as far as it depended on her. I think a great example of that kind of attitude are the blessing, the community projects that we undertake through small groups in the church. Um, So as a church, we love to resource small groups to, to regularly reach out and serve the community. And you can see examples of it here. Some kind of tangible way of demonstrating God's love And um, just this last week, actually, um, Sam and Lucy's uh, group did an amazing job creating an allotment area at a local school. I think here they are. And I think this one is just a great example of, of people, like it says in Romans, honoring others with zeal. Look at the way they did such a brilliant job. And I think, you know, when we do these projects, it becomes really evident that we're sort of, we're turning these things upside down because people... The way they react to this. When we do Blessing the Community projects, they're often like, what, what are you do? why are you doing that? Do I have to pay you some money for that? They're often surprised by what we're doing. Apparently, the teacher that Sam and Lucy's group connected with, um, she'd been trying to get this allotment project off the ground for two years, but she'd never had the time or the help or the money to do it. And they came in, and they provided all three. And I love this photo of her reaction. Look at that. She's like... And it happened because... This group saw this need, and instead of thinking, so when is somebody going to do something about that? So, you know, shouldn't somebody do something about that? They actually thought, well, actually, as far as it depends on us, what could be done? And this is the principle this passage is encouraging us to embrace with our whole lifestyle. It's asking us to consider, is there a need in my community or in my workplace or in my street that everyone else can see and perhaps anyone could do, but nobody has because it's somebody else's responsibility. What could be done as far as it depends on me? It might be something in in this church. Um, Like Becca just mentioned um, during the announcements, um, over the summer, we have opportunities for summer serving because people go away on holiday and we need extra cover. And that's just a classic example of something where it would be so easy for us to say, Oh, well, this is a really big church. There'll be loads of people that will want to do that. But actually, what if one of those slots, God's already prepared it for you as far as it depends on you? Or it could be at work. There might be a job that that never gets done properly because it kind of doesn't really feel like it's anybody's responsibility and it irritates everybody. Well, how about you? Or at home, a job that never gets done because nobody enjoys doing it. In all of these areas, we're invited to, to look at the world through this lens to say, I'm going to take responsibility for the interests of people around me. Now, the other area that this passage, we'll spend a bit more time looking at this one. This passage addresses the, the, the whole area of conflict. Um, conflict. And, and conflict is, is a funny one, isn't it? Because it's so hard to think this way when we're in the midst of a conflict, isn't it? So um, I'm sure this is pretty unique to me and Abby, I'm sure none of you guys can empathize with this in your um, home settings or with your housemates, but but in our house, Abby and I sometimes do things that irritate one another. <laughs> so, for example, I mean, this has all been um, approved by Abby, by the way, <laughs> but for example, I get irritated when Abby puts dirty um, washing up stuff in, in the washing up bowl to soak. To soak. Um, because the water goes cold and you get this sort of scummy film around the sink and the whole thing is just totally gross. Well, Abby gets frustrated when I leave doors ajar and, um, and I've tried pointing out that this helps with the ventilation, um, but she often reminds me that fridges don't really work that way. And these, these are little things that for some reason, they can be so hard to overlook, even if we're making a special effort. You know, so some days I, I, I think I'm going to make a special effort, and I you know, go, oh, there's a mug in the sink. No problem, I'll just pop that in the dishwasher. And then, of course, like an hour later, there's another mug in the sink. And you're like, oh, I'll, I'll move this one, Abs, no problem. And then by the time it's the third one, I'm like, Abby, you know how I feel about this mug. I've started to think this way. I've started to think about, you know, it's your responsibility to think about something that's important to me. And John Wimber used to say, don't sweat the small stuff. John Wimber, who led the vineyards in the, in the 80s um, and during the infancy of the movement, he used to say, don't sweat the small stuff. And I think that wasn't just because he was a chilled out Californian dude. I think it's because he spent his life around people and he spent his life around church and he had seen firsthand the damage that small stuff can do over time. Because the problem is, the more we think this way, the more likely we are to get into an argument. And the deeper we get into an argument, the more likely we are to think this way. And the whole thing is like a vicious circle that just keeps on going. And and it's this, this thinking and this cycle that causes arguments and conflicts to escalate. And it's also the same thing that causes arguments and conflicts to be prolonged. If we're thinking this way and we get embedded this way, then the whole thing, we can, we can harbour a grudge for days, for months, for generations. So how do we break this cycle? Well, in verse 14, it suggests we switch these things around. It says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. We think about it this way. if if this thinking is the way into an argument, it's saying this thinking is the way out of one. But that, of course, isn't a straightforward thing to do, is it? Conflict often leaves us wounded. It can be painful. Um, It might be that you're here today, and perhaps somebody has done something to you or said something to you that's left you hurting in a really meaningful way. And you're asking but does there not come a point where you have to kind of stand up for yourself or a point where you have to kind of like retaliate when it gets to a certain level? You might be thinking, you know, considering what this person has done to me, how could you expect me to think about it this way? Is that not their responsibility to do that, especially when I'm, I'm, I'm the victim? But unfortunately, the reality is that conflict and unforgiveness is poisonous and, and, and toxic to us. And we can go on waiting for the other person to apologize, for the other person to do something about it. But unfortunately, the reality is they may not ever do that. And since we can't rely on others to fix it for us, if we want to see a change, sometimes we need to be the ones to do something, to act. And that's why it says, as far as it depends on you, if it's possible, live at peace with everyone. And what this might involve for us is it might involve us having to to sort of own up to our own stuff, to, to acknowledge that we had a part in the conflict. Um, and, and when I say that, I don't mean just sort of saying, yeah, I know that I did this, but... I mean actually acknowledging what we did without a but. But also, to begin to find our way out, we need to, we need to think about the other person's interests. We need to empathise with them. In this passage, you might have noticed that, that having an attitude of empathy... Um, Is something that's important to God in our interactions with other people. So, for example, it talked about mourning with those who mourn and um, rejoicing with those who rejoice. But even in conflict situations, it suggests that we're to, even with people who aren't our natural allies, we're to to think about their needs. Um, Skipping on to verse 20, it says, um, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And I appreciate that, that advice. It might, that sounds like a challenging thing to do, doesn't it? When we're talking about real enemies, it, it feels counterintuitive because it may not feel like that person deserves that. And just to be clear, what I'm not saying here is that, and I don't think this is saying that, that there should never be consequences to conflict. So, for example, if somebody does something that is abusive or illegal to us, um, then it may be that there needs to be consequences, It may be that we need to seek protection, that we need to involve other parties. It may be that a relationship has to change or has to end. But those kind of boundaries that we have to put in place, um, those kind of consequences, they need not be incompatible with forgiveness. And those boundaries and those consequences must never be revenge. The Bible doesn't give us any permission to seek revenge. As Jesus followers we have to remind ourselves ultimately that we're not in a strong position to to decide who deserves what punishment. Jesus once told a story of a a servant who owed his master an enormous amount of money and he couldn't repay it. And, And the master generously wrote off the debt. He canceled the debt But this, we read, is how the servant responded in the story. It says, But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, and he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And when the master heard about this in the story, he said, Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? just as I had on you. And this parable is an illustration of how we, we ultimately live with a worldview where our rights and responsibilities are based on different foundations. We live in light of the fact that that he has ultimately taken care of our interests. He has forgiven us, he set us free so that we can focus on looking after the interests of others. He's taking care of our interests, and he says, freely you receive, now freely give. It's a really um, small example of this, but just over a year ago, I got on a bus, and it was a hot day, um, I think people were a bit stressed, but the bus driver was, I mean, this is just my opinion, but like really, really rude to me, um, and I won't, I won't go through the whole scenario because you never know, they might be here, um, <laughs> but... Um, but, you know, like, there, could be, there, could, there could be no way that this bus driver was acting in accordance with customer service protocol. Let's just, let's just leave it there. And so I, I found a seat, and I was kind of fuming. And I pulled out my phone, and I noted the time of the day and what bus it was. And I was Googling where to write a, a, an email, a complaint email, and I was thinking, I'm going to really enjoy writing this email. Until I felt like just a little bit of a nudge from God. And the thought just came through my brain, you know his actually his reaction was so disproportionate he was so rude to me he was so quick to get irritated it's likely therefore that his reaction probably wasn't directed primarily towards me it's likely that actually this wasn't about me and this was perhaps about something else going on in his life and you know i began to wonder i wonder what is going on in this guy's life and i began to think about that and And to be honest with you, that was literally as far as the empathy went. I didn't end up speaking to him. I never got to find out what his circumstances were. But simply reminding myself that he had circumstances was enough for this sense of outrage and this sense of offense to just, it just drained away from me in an instant. And I realized I'm probably not going to send that email. And I didn't. And I think that's just a tiny little example of the principle that this passage is presenting us with. In in God's kingdom, it's our responsibility to look out for the interests of others, to think about their situation, even in the midst of painful conflict situations, even in the midst of situations where we feel offended. And when we find it hard to do that, when we find it hard to show grace to others, we need to plumb into and tap into God's grace. We need to remind ourselves that ultimately Jesus died for us that we were once in a debt over our heads and he lavished in that moment his grace on us. And that's how, that's, that's how we find our way to the answer of the question. So, you know, so how far do we have to go? How gracious do we have to be? How far does it depend on us to forgive others? How far do we go? Well, it depends how free we want to be. It just depends how free we want to be because, because in the same way, the more we think this way, the more free we become. And the more free we become, the more likely we are to think this way. It's kind of like an unvicious circle that works the other way around. And it can deal with even the most um, horrible traumas over time. Um, Back in 2015, um, one of the SS officers from the Second World War um, stood trial for his involvement in the murder of 300,000 people. His name um, was Oscar Groening. And um, during, during the trial, he admitted um, that he was morally responsible for what had happened. But what was what really captured the news's attention was after the trial, a lady called Eva Korr, who had been at Auschwitz, who'd been her fam- members of her family had been killed. She'd been subjected to experiments while she was there. She approached him after the trial and she reached out to him. She said, um, My name is Eva Korr. I was a survivor of Auschwitz, and I want to thank you for being willing to stand trial and bear witness to what happens. And she extended um, forgiveness to him. And in that moment, he reached out and he embraced her. And there's a picture of it here. And at the time, many people found that moment difficult to stomach because you know, they were questioning whether it was appropriate for, to be gracious to somebody who'd been involved in something that was so horrendous. And her response was this. She said, "For the life of me i don't understand why nobody cares to endorse my gesture of kindness towards an old man or his gesture of loving towards me. Is that such a big crime? Why are we so willing to accept animosity and revenge and not goodwill? I prefer a loving gesture over a hateful gesture any time and Eva had discovered that in forgiveness she had been set free she said." She said this, she said, "'Once you don't have animosity and anger towards them, "'you're opening yourself up to a lot of other human emotions.'" She had experienced freedom, freedom from the pain and relief from the pressure of feeling responsible for harboring judgment over this person. And that really is the point that, that this passage in Romans continues to make. It says in verse 19, it says, "'Do not take revenge, my dear friends.'" But leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. It says, it's mine to repay, leave room for God's wrath. And it says that because because it's reminding us that justice is ultimately God's job, not ours. God's saying, yes, I'm very aware of their responsibilities. Just trust me to take care of justice. And so when we consider something like those terrible war crimes or, or examples of things that have gone on in our lives, and there'll be people in the room who bear scars when our heart restlessly yearns for justice, we can be thankful and we can take comfort in the fact that ultimately God cares more about justice than we do. Who's more qualified to execute justice? Is Is it me, the person who can't forgive my wife for putting a mug in the sink and can't remember to shut the door? Or is it God who laid down his life on a cross so that we could be set free and justice done? I think it's God, isn't it? When we try and take his role as judge from him, all we're doing is we're picking up a burden that's too heavy for us to bear. And that's why unforgiveness is so wearing, so tiring, and ultimately toxic. And conversely, it's why forgiveness is the path to setting ourselves free. And ultimately and potentially, it helps set the other person free too. You might have noticed, um, if you've ever read this before, it ends with a slightly quirky phrase. Um, In verse 20, it says, um, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. That's weird. Now, what it's not saying here is that by, by, sort of, um, by being nice to an enemy, you're effectively punishing them. Because remember, elsewhere, it's just said, don't seek revenge. And the wider message of the New Testament is that we, sh- we, we do not do that. We've got no permission to seek revenge. But what's more likely is that by not rushing in and judging people, we're providing space for deliberation. And ultimately for conviction, we're we're giving them a better opportunity of reaching a place of repentance and finding the freedom that they ultimately need, um, just as we do. So when we choose to forgive a person, as Eva did, it creates the possibility for for both of us to get set free. A member of our church um, called Sal, um, I spoke to her um, this week, and she grew up in a family setting that was affected by the pain of, of, of wounds and the misgivings of previous generations, so very quickly her, her father had been absent for most of her childhood. Her mother had had a complicated past because she'd been she'd been conceived out of wedlock, something that was covered up by a family adoption and it resulted in lots of sort of internal family secrets and mistrust and stifled affection and in later life, her mother had ended up turning to alcohol to sort of numb the pain of that experience and tragically and I guess inevitably a lot of that pain and hurt bled into Sal's life and um, she she described her experience she said well fast forward 20 years and I'm exploring faith with my family here at Trent this was last year week two of the alpha course and I hear that my absent father had died leaving a messy estate of debts creditors and civil investigations For me to sort as next of kin. And very soon I'm feeling the all too familiar emotions of anger, rejection and worthlessness. I recognise the damage this generational spin cycle was doing on me personally, on my relationships with others, including God and my own faith development. However, during the Freedom in Christ course, Sal explained, The Holy Spirit revealed a roll call of people in my past that I need to forgive my dad, my mum, my granddad, Auntie Joyce, and God himself. God never does anything wrong to us, but sometimes it's God that we can be most angry at, isn't it? She says, guided step by step through the process, I was able to do this, forgive these people, through him. I left the course feeling completely burden free with an overwhelming sense of security and peace. I've since felt a closeness to God I've never felt before, like the faith floodgates, have been opened up for me. Life's journey can be complicated with many challenges along the way, but the strength you gain from using his strength is a secret power everyone should know about. Let's not keep that quiet. This stuff is not just theory, it actually is real. It's real. And for some of you, that might be the place that you're at today. Perhaps it's a person in your life, a, a relationship, or somebody that, you, that you've had to work with, a client, a neighbour. It could be anybody, but there's pain. Ultimately, we're not responsible for their actions, but we are responsible for our reactions. And I know it's really hard, and in fact, it's impossible in our own strength, in our own capacity. But, but as Sal found out, he gives us the strength. He gives us the grace We love and forgive others because he first loved and forgave us. And so it's his grace at work in us. Just to to finish, um, a while ago my sister sent me a copy of a poem um, that you might have heard. It's attributed to Mother Teresa, but it's not actually clear whether she wrote it or whether she quoted it or whether she had it on her wall. But to be honest, that's not really important. Um, I just think the words are great and I'd love to share it with you. It says, people are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of, of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you'll win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have, and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it's between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. We stand together let's stand